0: chapter 4, verse 1. Now, last week, we spent a little bit of time looking at the end of chapter 3, really most of chapter 3, at the nature of God's judgment. What does God's judgment look like? After all, remember, that's a large part, in fact, the main part of what Amos's uh, book is about. It's addressed first one of chapter 1 to Israel the northern kingdom when the kingdom of Israel was divided Judah in the south Israel in the north Amos being someone from the south was commissioned by God to be a prophet therefore sent to the north to prophesy to Israel and to warn them that the time of God's judgment upon them for their wickedness has actually indeed come And so last week, actually all through thus far, the first three chapters, we've been considering God's judgment issued out in various ways and for various reasons. And last week, we considered the nature of that judgment, that it was, number one, public. Uh, It wasn't done in secret. It wasn't hidden and it wasn't private. It was public and it will be public. Number two, last week, we considered that it was just God does not act without a reason, and God does not judge for no reason. His judgment is just, and it's against sin. And then we finished chapter 3 by considering God's judgment was comprehensive, that God was going to deal uh, with Israel in a variety of ways as an act of judgment. He was going to remove their security, He was going to remove their religion. Uh, He was going to remove all of those comforts and luxuries that they might have been trusting in. Now as we come to chapter 4, verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3, we get another glimpse of what God's judgment is like. And it's personal. So God's judgment is not just public, it's not just just completing holy justice. And it's not just comprehensive, it's personal. And by that, I do not mean that God's judgment is a personal vendetta against us. In one sense, it's absolutely true. God's judgment is personal. It comes from Him personally. But it's not as if God is holding a grudge against humanity individually and personally uh, dispensing wrath and judgment as if he were angry at just a few. What I mean when I say that God's judgment is personal is that it's individual. And that every one of us individually will stand before God. It's often a concept Often a principle, often a teaching that we know, it's, it's sort of implied when we talk about God's judgment. It's sort of embedded or it's sort of the undercurrent of everything else that we contemplate and have contemplated and said in the first three chapters of Amos. But I believe here in chapter four, God begins to make that just explicitly clear that though a whole people and though a whole nation may be guilty before God, it will be individuals who stand before him and give an account. In fact, up to this point, up to chapter 4, God has been treating Israel in a little bit more of a general fashion. Maybe perhaps even implying their religious leaders or political leaders. But today in chapter 4, he turns his attention and says it's not just Israel generally that will be judged. It's the individuals of Israel That will stand before God. I think that's the intention behind the first three verses of chapter four. So look with me in Amos chapter four, verse one. We'll read those first three verses. And consider God's individual or personal judgment. Verse one. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, and who crush the needy, and who say to your husbands, Bring, that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you When they shall take you away by hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead. And you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. The first thing to consider this morning comes in verse one. As we consider God's judgment upon individuals or God's judgment being personal, it means it's direct. And God does something very unique at this point in chapter four, verse one. He's addressing a very specific and very select group of people that's within Israel. Not only are they very unique, uh, uh, select, they're very. Abnormal. Indeed, unique. He begins by calling them cows of Bashan. It's one of those metaphorical terms that can almost be used as a title to refer to a group of people. In the Hebrew, that word cows or the singular form cow is strictly feminine. All Hebrew language, every Hebrew word has a Feminine or masculine component, there are no neutral words in Hebrew, as you can suspect, most Hebrew words are masculine, but occasionally there are feminine words that are used or feminine forms of words that are used, and they're meant to convey certain things, and this is one of those feminine words And it's meant to force the reader to realize that not only is Amos talking about Israel in general, he's talking about a very narrow, select group of women. It's unique also because this is a largely patriarchal society. Often God has addressed the men as symbolic as leaders over their homes and leaders over their country and leaders over their neighbors. But here he draws his attention to women. We find that also highlighted at the end of verse 1 when he tells these women that they're the kind who say to their husbands, bring us drinks. So Amos, God through Amos forces us to look at a very narrow and specific group of women. And then he further emphasizes their uniqueness when he calls them not only cows, but cows of Boshan. Boshan was a region at the time. It was east of the Sea of Galilee. It was known explicitly as fertile country, prime farmland, prime grazing land. And many agree that over time, it not only carried the meaning of a region, it carried the meaning of prosperity because it was such a fertile place. Much like you and I will use uh, the phrase, uh, they live in Beverly Hills or they live in Manhattan. And that phrase not only denotes a region, it also denotes a sense of stature or reputation or even wealth. Such was the same at this time, to be called an individual of Boshan either meant that you were from that region and or that you were just someone who was prosperous, well off and wealthy. All of a sudden in Amos chapter four, verse one, we find God going from this very general idea and very general uh, addressing of the nation of Israel and maybe by extension their male religious leaders to now addressing these cows of Boshan, these wealthy women who did nothing but live in their luxury, live in their comfort, and presumably stuff themselves like cattle, no concern for life, simply doing whatever their instinct or fleshly impulses wanted them to do. I think the point here in addressing these women is not so that we would look at it today and say, God's addressing just this this group of women. I think the point coming from God is to say, nobody is immune from God's judgment. You can be the king of Israel, you can be the religious leaders of Israel. You can be the leaders of your household. You can also be the wealthy women who think that they won't have to answer to anybody because they simply live the life that their husbands call them to live. God says that is never the case. Every individual will give an account before Him. Nobody, nobody is immune from God for any reason. I think that's further highlighted through the rest of verse 1. These wealthy women, they're further described with four other statements. I call them the who statements because that's how these phrases begin. First, they are the women who are on the mountain of Samaria. Likely, this is metaphorical again. It could mean that they're High and lifted up in terms of their stature and their reputation. That their wealth makes them think that they're above everybody else. And perhaps being above everybody else, they're secure. Protected. They occupy the high ground. They're not like the commoners. They're not like the ordinary people. And as we have seen this attitude all throughout Israel's history, they're not like the sinners down below. Instead, they're the elite. And they don't live on just the plains or the open grasslands. They live in the palaces on the mountains. The wealthy places that only a few go to. And there, they're secure. They're, they're safe in their wealth. And they're safe in their location. And they may even think and feel that they might be able to hide. God says, no, I see you. I know where you're at. And I know who you are. You may think that you're untouchable. And your lofty position in society may make you arrogant or prideful. Or make you feel like you're protected from God's wrath or judgment or scrutiny. But that is not the case. Your cow's of Bosch and wealthy women living in luxury, stuffing yourself with no concern, thinking you're protected on the mountain, and indeed you are not. Number two, he says. You're people who oppress the poor. Really, this uh, beginning verse here in chapter 4 follows with a lot of similarity the same sort of pattern that we saw in chapter 1 and chapter 2 when God began His message through Amos by pronouncing judgment and condemnation on all these pagan nations. Remember He says, For, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because you did something it carries the same kind of uh, judgment-like pattern and it carries uh, with it or, or embedded in the verses the same sort of issues that these other nations are being judged for. In fact, they're the same sort of things if we went back to chapter 2 and looked at, looked at Israel's uh, guilt or Israel's sin. They're the same things that were mentioned for the whole nation of Israel. They are oppressing the poor. Which if you remember from... Amos 2 and part of Amos 3. Now, that, that means more than just neglecting the poor. That means perverting justice. Denying them aid when they need aid. Generally having no care whatsoever for them. It's not a passive statement. It's a proactive statement. You are actively oppressing those less fortunate than you. The poor of your society, you don't just look down upon and disregard. You actually oppress them to your own selfish gain and indulgence. And you remember back in chapter 2 why that's a big deal? It's because it's so opposite of the character of God. God is a God who cares for the poor, right? He doesn't just care for the poor financially or or economically or even socially, though that is true. The Old Testament is packed full of references and commands where he instructs his people, you should definitely care for the poor in your land to the degree that even the way you harvest your crops should be done mindful of the poor who might come up and glean what's left behind. God absolutely cares for the poor, but don't our own souls demonstrate the fact that God cares for the poor? That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, in Matthew chapter five, "Blessed are the, what in spirit, the poor, who recognize that they're poor." Because in recognizing that you're poor, you find that God cares for the poor. God cares for those who are less fortunate, even when it comes to their spiritual standing. Brothers and sisters, how much more so should that be of the people who profess to be the people of God? Aren't we to hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves and do the things that God does? Isn't that what it means to be godly? Isn't that what it means to be Christ-like? Isn't that what it means to be sanctified? Isn't that what it means to be given a new heart and a new life and new desires when we're born again? We're now after the likeness of our Father, and our Father cares for the poor. And so if we profess to belong to the Father, we also ought to care for the poor. What's going on in Amos chapter 4 is they think that they're the people of God bearing the name of Israel, but they actually are not like God. They're like the the other pagan nations who do the exact same thing. Heaven forbid that you or I profess to be a Christian and then act just like the pagan world around us and not like our Heavenly Father. Because that's what they're doing. They look more like the ungodly nations around them. Than they do like their God. So they proactively oppress the poor. It goes further. We often find this in Amos. The, the transgression just intensifies. Right? They not only oppress the poor. Number three in verse one. They crush the needy. Again this is kind of like what we saw in chapter one. With the pagan nations. It's excessive. Excessive cruelty, not only do they deny the poor justice, not only do they deny the poor aid, but those who who can't even care for themselves, the needy, a a different level, other not just poor who are struggling to get get by, though they're struggling with all their might. These are the needy who can't care for themselves. They can't look out for themselves. And instead of helping them, what what do these women do? What are they guilty? What are they guilty of? Crushing them. Didn't we see that language not too long ago? Chapter 2, verse 7. God is going to punish Israel because they'll sell the needy for a pair of sandals and trample the head of the poor into the dust, turn aside the afflicted. Same thing is happening with even these women. God is saying to them, it's not just your husbands. It's not just your leaders who are guilty. You, too, are guilty. You oppress the poor and you crush the needy. And you, with your own foot, bury their heads into the dust. Far from helping them. Far from showing compassion, by the way, which is a characteristic of Christ that is probably at least one of the most profound and obvious characters of Christ in the gospel accounts, far from showing them compassion, far from showing them uh, care, you crush them with your foot. You burden them with your restrictions. You tax them for your own indulgence. You crush them down, perhaps even to the point of expelling them. I personally see within that phrase a certain degree of selfishness. It's never easy to care for the needy, is it? It requires sacrifice, it requires intentionality, it requires, it requires effort. Sometimes it requires our own money, our own resources to care for those who are unable to care for themselves. Sometimes it feels personally taxing. It would be far easier to just crush the needy and do away with them, kick them out of our land, expel them from our cities, rather than actually care for them like God does. Lastly, God says, number four in verse one, Your women, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The problem here is the drinking. And I'm not saying drinking alcohol, period. If you go back to chapter 2, this was the same issue of israel chapter 7 i mean chapter 2 verse 7 verse 8 god's laying out these sins and at the end of verse 8 one of the things he holds against israel is that in the house of their god they drink the wine of those who have been fined that that should not be away from our minds as we consider this very same very familiar phrase in chapter 4 verse 1 They're looking to their husbands and they're saying, yes, bring all the drinks. Let's continue to celebrate and let's continue to party and let's continue to be merry. And just like I said in chapter 2, verse 8, the same thing is true here. They're acting with total unconcern for the wickedness that they've been perpetuating on others. Presumably because... Their hearts are so hardened, they don't even know that they've sinned against God. They think everything's good. There's not an ounce here of remorse. There's not an ounce here of of repentance. There's not an ounce here of conviction or contrition. It's only celebration. Instead of dealing with sin, instead of righting their wrongs, instead of giving up their wicked behavior, they simply indulge in their life of luxury. It's the familiar phrase we've seen throughout the Scriptures before. They were eating and drinking and being merry like in the days of Noah, totally unaware that every intention and thought of their heart is evil and that God's judgment is pending over them. I don't know if you're like me, but I have confessed to God many times in life. That I am very concerned, not just with the sin that I've committed, but the numbness in my heart towards the sin I've committed. Because before long, if you begin to think that your sin is not a big deal, you will find yourself just like these women eating and drinking and being merry and throwing celebrations, totally unaware of God's displeasure towards your entire way of living. Now, what do all these four things say about God? Well, as I said, I don't think the point for us in understanding this passage is just to think, how dare those group of women, how dare the cows of Bashan, I think the point for us is to realize God lets no one escape His judgment, that every individual will be held accountable before Him. And then as He walks through these things that He knows about them, oppressing the poor, crushing the needy, celebrating in the face of their wickedness, I think it's this unmistakable lesson that nothing is hidden from God's sight. He knows exactly who these women are. He knows exactly what they're doing. He knows exactly what they've been partaking of. There is nothing outside of His sovereign eyesight. If we were to look back into Ezekiel chapter 8, we would find God speaking to Ezekiel the prophet and sharing with him a vision. And in that vision he says, look at the Look at the priests of Israel and look at the abominations that they're committing and look at what they're saying. And you know what they say in Ezekiel chapter 8 as they're committing their wicked acts? They say, the Lord has forgotten us and He does not see what we're doing because He's forsaken this land. It's easy to think that God is simply Forgetting to watch us. That God doesn't see the secrets of our hearts and our minds. That actually we're getting away with our thoughts. And we're getting away with our motives. And we're getting away with our actions. It's easy to fall into the same tempting mindset of those priests in Ezekiel chapter 8. God doesn't see. God has forgotten. We can do whatever we want. The point is here, God knows definitely who you are. God knows definitely what you're doing. God knows definitely what you've done. And as Hebrews chapter four says, no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to him to whom they must give an account. You women of Israel, you wealthy women up on the mountain of Samaria, thinking that you're secure, thinking that you're better than everybody else, thinking that you might escape God's judgment, thinking that you might blame your patriarchal leaders for your compliance with sin in the land, you are by no means going to be immune from God's standard of holiness. God knows you. So His judgment is personal, and we know that because it's direct. Number, or Verse 2 and verse 3, number 2, God's judgment is not just direct, it's devastating. It's devastating. In verse 2, we're told something very serious. The Lord God has sworn. And He's sworn by His holiness. I contend personally that there are few things more important in the Scriptures than God's holiness. It's the, in my understanding, the one attribute that defines and touches and informs all the other attributes of God. Yes, God may be wise and good and loving and 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 kind and wrathful and just and all those other things. But holiness is the one all-encompassing attribute, the umbrella attribute of God that therefore qualifies all the other attributes. He's not just uh, possessing love. He has a holy love. And He doesn't just have wrath. He has holy wrath. And He doesn't just have justice. He has holy justice. Which means it's pure. It's distinct. It's set apart. It is unlike anyone or anything else. That's why God being defined as a holy God is one of His most important descriptors. Because when you and I hear that God is holy, we should automatically think not just purity and not just perfection, but entirely other from us in a different class all by Himself. That's what it means for God to be holy. And thus all His attributes are marked by that holiness. His love is of another kind. And His wrath is of another kind. So when we find God swearing and furthermore making a vow or an oath or swearing by His holiness... It's meant to convey to you and I the significance of what God thinks about the situation and what God is doing about the situation. It makes you think also back to Hebrews. When the writer of Hebrews tells us that when God made a covenant before Abraham, since he had nothing or no one greater by whom to swear to Abraham, he swore by himself. Essentially looking at Abraham and saying, I'm going to make this promise to you, this covenant with you. And here's your guarantee that I'll keep it. I swear by my own character. So by two unchangeable things. God's inability to break his promise and God's inability to lie. Abraham might have certainty. The same principle applies here. Since there's no one nor nothing greater by whom God could swear. He swears to Israel again this time swearing by His holiness, yet not in a covenant to deliver them or give them a land or make them a people, but to punish them. Brothers and sisters, friends, God does not treat sin lightly. God does not simply ignore it. and you might take your economic prosperity and you might take your relative comfortable life and your easy life and you might take the the fact that all your dreams are coming true in the land of freedom and 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 in, in the land of dreams and the land of prosperity and the land of potential you might take all of those things to and, and put them together even subconsciously to think that you're secure and that your sins really not that big a, big a deal that if If I just ask for forgiveness, I can be forgiven. If if I just go to church, I can do more good than I do bad. Here's the point of the opening phrase of verse 2. God takes sin seriously, so seriously, that when He declares His judgment, He swears by His own holiness that it will come to pass. Don't grow complacent. Don't grow comfortable. Don't neglect. God does not take sin lightly. And thus his punishments against sin are not light. He swears by his holiness. that, Look in verse 2. The days are coming upon you. When three things will happen, very quickly. (coughs) First, they're going to be carried away. The verse actually says, they shall take you away. They being your enemies and taking away being against your own will. You're not going to want to go. You want to keep your wealth. You want to stay on your mountain. And you want to keep your lifestyle. But they, your enemies, are coming. And against your will, they will carry you off. They will take you. Regardless of what you say. Regardless of who you are. Regardless of what you do. They will take you. Then he says, they will take you away with hooks. This is one of the more difficult phrases to interpret in Amos's work. Uh, the word for hooks, and then the uh, subsequent word in verse two, fish hooks. And your Bible might actually have different variations of those words, different translations of those words, perhaps even footnotes in uh, with those words. That word specifically, fish hook, by most accounts, seems to be a word that we have lost its understanding of. And so some take certain category or certain components of that word and they piece it together and they come out with this word, "fish hooks." But it, it's a debatable word to some degree. So is the word hooks. What is meant when God says to these women, you will be taken away with hooks? Now, if we wanted to just think in, uh, in our own frame of reference, we might think military weapons, uh, perhaps a hook on the end of a, a spear or, or some sort of a weapon like that. But the context doesn't allow such explanations and does, it certainly doesn't allow them easily. Because God is using a metaphor with these women and the metaphor is that of cattle. So I think there are two plausible Explanations for why we should take the word to be the word hook and what the word hook means. And it's all of that to come back to tell you this. It either means first you will be carried away with hooks just like butchered cattle get carried away with hooks. I don't know if you know anything about butchering cattle. It's kind of fascinating to me. But once the animal is Taken care of and processed up, it's often hung on hooks for periods of time and then moved around via such ways. Some think it means that you will be butchered like cattle and carried off like butchered cattle on hooks. I don't think that's the main reason because I think it makes the next phrase harder to understand. There's another possible rendering for that word hooks. And it can mean the, the, the word uh, nose ring that often is placed in large animals, large beasts to control them. Put a hook or a ring in their nose. And if they're plowing the field or hauling something heavy, it's the easiest way to control them and make them stay on the path, make them stay where you want them to stay and do what you want them to do. That method is actually still used today. It wasn't just used in the time of Amos. It's used today. Many farmers will put a a ring in a bull's nose so that if the time comes, they can control that animal with relative ease. I think that's the point. You're going to be taken away. Like beast of burden, you're going to be taken away. Like cattle, you're going to be carried off against your will, and you're going to be controlled by the hooks in your nose, by the rings in your nose, and you're going to be led with relative ease wherever you don't want to go. Then he adds, even the last of you are going to be taken away with fish hooks. Now, here's the problem with the word fishhooks. Number one, there's very little evidence that fishhooks were used to fish in this time. The primary means of fishing was by net. We find that with the disciples, even in the Gospels. The other reason several want to discount this word as being the accurate translation is because it doesn't go with the metaphor of cattle don't use fish hooks on cattle. Cattle don't care about fish hooks. But Here's why I think it's an appropriate translation. I think it's God's way of saying you're going to be led away, not just with hooks or rings in your nose, but with such ease that even fish hooks will drag you about. You'll be led away easier than a beast of burden than, with a ring in his nose than anything else. So easy that fish hooks will determine where you go. They'll hook you with little fish hooks and drag you to places you don't want to go. You are completely out of control at the whims of somebody else. You'll be taken away. Secondly, the next thing that shows that God's judgment is devastating. He says in verse three, you shall go out through the breaches. The breaches means the holes in the walls that your enemy puts there. Which means your fortresses have fallen. There's no more security, no military defense. There's nobody to come to your aid. There's nobody to come to your defense. And in fact, there's not even going to be a need any longer to use the gate through your wall, the gate to your city, because the breaches are going to be so wide and so open, they're just going to lead you through the wall itself. Your entire defense is useless. He says they're not only going to lead you through the breaches, they're going to lead you straight ahead through the breaches. It's not as if you're going to have to try to, they're going to have to try to lead you over a broken wall or lead you through little holes in the wall that they've breached to come and sack your city. They're actually wide enough, big enough, clear enough. Your fortresses are actually destroyed enough that they're going to march you straight through the hole in the wall. So if you're hoping that you're going to be able to resist them taking you away by your own strength, think again, they're going to lead you away by fish hooks. If you're hoping that your army is going to rise up and defend you, if you're hoping that your your fortresses will stand and your walls of defense will stand, think again, they're going to lead you through the breaches of your walls as if they're not even there. And thirdly, after that, you'll be cast out into harmon. Harmon's another tricky word in Amos. It could mean the word Hermon, and it could refer to Mount Hermon, which was on the northern boundary of Israel at the time. If that's the case, it means you're going to be cast out into enemy territory. I think the point regardless is that phrase, cast out. It carries both social and religious implications for these Israelite people. Socially, your way of life is over. Your way of comfort, your way of celebrating, your way of oppressing the poor and crushing the needy and living high on your lofty mountains, done with. You will be cast out of your land. But the religious overtones with that phrase coming from God are even more significant. Why is that? Because God promised them this land. Earlier in their history, God drove out enemies so that they might have this land. And now God says, I'm going to kick you out of it. It means God has rejected you. It means there is no more peace with God. There is no more promise from God. You have rebelled against God and God is casting you off. Brothers and sisters, friends, sin is serious. It's a devastating, comprehensive judgment. You're going to be carried away against your will. You're going to go through your broken fortress walls and you're going to be cast out of the promised land of God with no hope no no relationship with god it's just like being cast out into the uttermost darkness you're going to be foreigners in a foreign land again slaves in an enemy land no longer having a home so as i said god's judgment is personal And since it's personal, it's direct, it's also devastating. It's directed to the individual of whom God knows all things, even the secrets of our hearts. And it's devastating because it's going to result in life being turned entirely upside down as you know it. But something else is coming in chapter 4. God tells of a time in chapter 4 when He offered Israel repentance. And He's actually offered them repentance for generations. As we'll see in chapter 4, the problem for Israel is they refused to repent. But here's what I'm trying to say to you and I today. The offer of repentance still stands for us. You see, you might find yourself guilty And you might be feeling the weight and the burden and the heaviness of God's pending judgment on you this morning, which, by the way, isn't so much a future thing as it is a present reality that you and I need to realize, because what does Jesus say in John chapter 3? Not just that God so loved the world that He sent His Son, which, hallelujah, that He did, but He also goes on to say that the wrath of God remains on those who do not believe in Jesus now. The wrath remains. It's presently there. And the only way for it to be alleviated is through Christ. Who, by the way, was carried off by His enemies on your behalf. Just like the judgment that these people were going to face. Being carried off with hooks. Our Lord was carried off, wasn't He? Only He wasn't abused with hooks. He was abused with nails. And these people who, who faced God's judgment in verse 3. They had no defenses to call upon. Just like our Lord. Who didn't call down his defenses. But willingly went to the cross. You see that's the difference. These people will be carried off against their will. Christ was carried off according to his will. So that he might endure the judgment. That these people deserve. That you and I deserve. So that we wouldn't be cast out. Of God's favor or God's love. But instead. Through Christ we're welcomed in. You can reject Jesus and you can embrace sin and you can uh, rebel against God. And I promise you, the same will happen to you, as did these people in Amos chapter four. You will be cast out. But if you come to Christ in repentance and faith, I can also promise you, you'll be carried into his promises, into his favor, into his grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. And you, though guilty, and though God knows all your guilt, just like He knows all the guilt of the women in chapter 4, verse 1, will still pardon that guilt through His Son, Jesus. You see, we are just like these women. And we very much so deserve devastating judgment. But Christ took that judgment on Himself. So that we won't have to endure this judgment. So that we may be forgiven. And carried into the promised land of God for eternity. And secure with Him for eternity. You know what it takes for that to be true? Repentance and faith. Admitting to God in repentance that you... Have sinned, and you want to give up that life of sin? And coming to Him in faith, trusting that He has given you His word, that all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved.